0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. A week in politics really is a very, very long time, we're rattling through the high-speed conservative leadership contest, Sajid Javid, whose resignation from the cabinet helped trigger the downfall of Boris Johnson, is already out, so two are others, and before long a huge excited field will be whittled down to just two. So we're going to catch up on that battle to become Prime Minister. A lot of the candidates have been talking about tax, or rather tax cuts. A bit less about spending and spending cuts. The right call? We're going to do the sums. As energy bills stay painfully high, concealed just a bit by the heatwave, we'll look at what a caretaker government should and shouldn't do to intervene and the options available to Boris Johnson's successor. Joining me in the studio today are two IFG senior fellows who've both worked in number 10, Jill Rutter and Giles Wilkes. Hi both. Hello. Hi Roman. (laughs) <laughs> I'm delighted that we're joined today by BBC Newsnight, Lewis Goodall, soon-to-be LBC's Lewis Goodall. How are you? I'm fine,
1: thank you. All good. Lots of politics to chew on,
0: so I'm a happy man. Let's start with a story that dominates the headlines and is leading all the bulletins, and that's the race to become Prime Minister. Sajid Jadley gone before the first round, Jeremy Hunt out, big names are falling. Lewis, what do you make of it?
1: You know what, it's a really bitty contest, actually, and it's clearly easily the most open one that there's been since 2016. And, of course, these are almost triennial events now. Well, this will be our fourth Conservative minister in six years. It worked out the other day you'd have to go back to the 1820s, so before universal, well, certainly before universal suffrage, before even Britain restarted its path to becoming a democracy, before the Great Reform Act of 1832, to have uh, four prime ministers from the same party in such a short period of time. Um I think that, uh, look, it's clear there are three candidates who are going to battle it out between them. We've just lost Sue a as we're recording this. Uh, Tom Tugendhat is also, you know, went backwards. So I suspect one way or the other he's going to be eliminated over the next few days. Kemi uh, baden Badnock pulling in a very respectable showing, but she's on 49. She's quite a way behind. And so that leaves Sunak, Morden and Truss. Morden clearly the surprising one, how much momentum that she's had. If you tot up the kind of votes that there are still out there, so between Balanock, Tugendhat, and Braverman, there's clearly more votes on the right. Uh, And it feels to me like Mordant is, and so most of the sort of right votes are probably going to trust. The remaining kind of party establishment, one nation, is a very big, broad generalisation, but one nation establishment vote is going to soon act. seems to be the one who is managing to pick up most votes from most camps. But it seems to me that the question of who comes first, who comes second, who comes third, is still a pretty open one. And as I say, that is why, um, you know, it's all to play for and is the most open since 2016.
0: That's a really interesting analysis because we've had this unexpected, um, you know, success of Penny Mordaunt in, in shooting ahead. Could you have seen that yeah, have well,
1: I mean, she's a bit of a, a, a riddle, isn't she, a bit of a sphinx. I, mean, I think she would be really, certainly in the modern age, the least, if she does succeed and become prime minister, it really will be astonishing. You know, she's minister of state for trade. Okay, she used to be defence secretary, so she used to be in the cabinet. But she's. Ha- I think she would have the most extraordinary journey of any modern prime minister, the most unknown, most unknowable, really. She's a bit of a sphinx. She'll have to obviously sort of Colour that in and paint a picture. If she over the next few weeks, and particularly obviously if she gets into the last two, but that is, I think, you know, to her advantage at the moment because you know I was doing a focus group, uh, sitting in on a focus group uh, yesterday, last night in uh, near Sheffield in the River Valley, and what was very clear from that is that, well, two things. First of all, uh, you know, m- the idea of a fresh face, a new broom, went down very well. The idea of association with the Johnson regime goes down pretty badly. And these are all sort of conservative inclined voters, by the way. And so the biggest problem that's some, something of a problem for trust. It's a really big problem for Sunak because he's easily the best known. And obviously not only is perceived to have association with Johnson, even though he did resign at the last minute, but obviously he's all over the economic policy, mm-hmm. quite literally mm-hmm. has his face on it. And as we know, famously has his signature on it as well. So that does, I think, is helping her to some extent. But of course, it also raises the prospect and possibility that when someone suddenly comes into the spotlight in a really serious way for the first time, that it can unravel quite quickly. So that, I think, is going to be the next sort of week, particularly this weekend, Sunday papers, I'd say, will be quite important.
0: Really interesting. Jill, what do you make of the way that Kemi Badenoch and and Penny Morden, who comparatively unknown um, ministers, have have shot to the front or shot into the front pack in this?
2: I think it's really interesting if you look back to the last leadership election not that long ago in 2019, as Lewis has just been reminding us. I think it's quite interesting how badly two of the people actually got to the latter stages of that contest, Sajid Javid and Jeremy Hunt, did. In this one, you would have thought maybe Sajid Javid had burnished his credentials rather than damaged them, but it didn't seem to work out like that. So I think there was a desperate looking around for someone very different. But I do think the Conservatives are running quite a big risk by having potentially a quite unknown and untested candidate get through to the final two. They've made candidates sign this pledge that they won't withdraw, as Andrea Leadsom did when she gave an unfortunate interview, which you could put down in a sense to a lack of prior exposure and experience, uh, which caused her to withdraw against Theresa May back in 2016. But I do think that by having this very compressed competition now to whittle down the field for reasons of timetable, the desire to get Boris Johnson uh, out shortly after the summer break, as shortly after as possible, not letting him hang on till the party conference, they are running a slight risk that there is suddenly a story when they're down to the last two that takes out a candidate and really damage them. I think it's really interesting, the way in which a lot of the people who are supporting Liz Truss are really questioning Penny Morden's competence as a minister. We had David mm. Frost's intervention this morning. Uh really other- interesting. And I, I'm looking
0: at a Telegraph headline right now, which says, Why Penny Mordant Reminds Me of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, this is by Christopher Hope, Associate Editor of Politics, saying, making the point that you're kind of making, saying her momentum with members is undeniable, but the risk is that not enough is known about her policies. She is a bit of a bank canvas. Yes, I think that
2: is a risk that this system is sort of potentially throwing up uh, i mean it's quite interesting how underexposed penny mordant has been uh, even as a minister of state she was defense secretary but only for two months she was then she was international development secretary before that but uh, but she's never i think done a sunday morning show since the referendum campaign. She's never at the 10 past eight slot on the Today programme. So we really haven't had her being grilled. So quite a lot, actually, I think then rides on these debates that we're going to get over the weekend to see how people equip themselves. But you also think it would be really quite handy, maybe before we have the next round of the contest, if the candidates could be subject to a proper forensic grilling by somebody just to see whether they're capable of withstanding that.
0: Really interesting. And is it possible that it doesn't go to party members, that it gets settled by MPs?
2: Well, it's of course technically possible in the way it works that we could have a repeat of 2016. But I think a lot of people thought that Theresa May's premiership was rather hampered by not having the endorsement of the membership and by not having to fight that campaign that she might have actually better defined what Brexit meant than just that Brexit means Brexit mantra. Um, So I think Everybody's moving heaven and earth to try and prevent that. And as I said, I think they've actually got the candidates to sign something saying, if we get into the last two, we won't withdraw, so to try and prevent that. Though Boris Johnson did seem to be looking for reasons not to turn up to Prime Minister's questions next week. And one of the things he said was, "It always possible that a successor could emerge by acclamation. But I don't think anyone's in a fight to, uh, anyone in this fight is looking like giving it up anytime soon.
1: Briefly, just on Jill's point around, you know, uh, being so unknown, I suppose the sort of closest example that I can think of of someone emerging like this was David Cameron in 2005. You know, yes, he was the party's shadow educa- education spokesperson at the time. He didn't Involved in conservative politics for many years, but in terms of his exposure to the public, was pretty much completely unknown. Um, but of course, the difference is, is that David Cameron was only auditioning to be leader of the opposition, which meant that in terms of policy and all of the things he might think about this, that, and the other, and budgets and so on, yes, people could talk about it theoretically, but he could get away with just saying, Well, look, an election's four or five years away, um, you know, this is broadly what I'm thinking about this, that, and the other, but didn't have to provide you know, direct answers about and decisions about things very quickly or give an indication of what they would do. Whoever wins this is going to be prime minister and is going to be prime minister in a period of deep crisis, both on the foreign policy and domestic front. Mm-hmm. And that is why, you know, as Jill says, there is a risk of someone potentially unravelling quite quickly under the white heat of, you know, what is going to be a very fierce contest and a very set of fierce decisions that both party and public are going to be expected from them.
0: Yeah, really important point. Um, Charles, what are we learning about how these people might govern?
1: Well, so
3: far I've shared a concern there that, in particular, I do not want to see another candidate who evades direct interview quite as effectively as Boris Johnson used to. I mean, can you remember way back, he was interviewed by Eddie Mayer when Eddie Mayer was standing in for Andrew Marr, I think, and then he made, delivered an absolutely brutal interview. We just quietly... This shot, is
0: quite a, niche, quite a niche reference, Charles, but anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah but, but no, the just, point is, he absolutely, that yeah. he
3: absolutely shocked Boris Johnson. He said, you're a really nasty piece of work, aren't you? And Johnson didn't know how to cope with it. And he wasn't very good at coping, with just quiet, persistent questioning. And all the way through the last um, election campaign, he was continuously evading scrutiny. He, he got out of the Andrew Neil interview, he got out of the, the, the head-to-head interviews with the uh, with the other leaders of the parties and i think it was very detrimental to democracy but it also means you don't really get to kick the tires of what he's going to do and i'd hate it if the other candidates took from that a, a model for how we should operate it's well, quite how-
2: interesting just to come in on that that of course the person you got to substitute for him was Rishi sunak who played yeah. the role of prime minister Irronic. in mm-hmm. those leader debates and I mean, was we- quite inter- and i remember talking to somebody who'd been helping with the prep for that. And Rishi Sunak kept on saying, I could give much better answers than these ones you're getting me to give. And they said, no, stick to the script, stick to the script.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But you asked about what we've learned about their policies. And I'm afraid, um, as as I think the IFG has been really effective in pointing out, we've, we've heard some really extravagant tax cut suggestions. And some ridiculous ideas for spending cuts that don't come anywhere near funding them. And the IFG has been fantastic in
0: laying out in bar okay. shops. I'm going I'm to exactly. come on to tax in a moment. That's our, kind of like, you know, like our second subject. But I wanted to ask you one particular thing about structure. Kemi Badenoch has said that she would break up the Treasury if she were yeah. prime minister. Economic growth would be run from number 10 with a new Office for Economic Growth. What do you make of that?
3: Well, look, there, there is an issue with how powerful the Treasury is. It, I mean, the piece that I'm hoping to publish over the summer about business investment argues very strongly that while the Treasury has a lot of the right instincts, it's got the very best minds, it does the best, most unsentimental analysis of ideas, which is really important. By being so powerful and having the final say over other uh, other departments, it kind of exports uncertainty into the rest of Whitehall. So other places cannot produce strategies that have any kind of endurability or consistency in the business mind, which means nobody can really invest with confidence. Now, so what it, what this means is there needs to be more even balance of relationship between the two. The Treasury, in a sense, needs to share the burden of making business investment rise with the rest of Whitehall. Now, does that mean setting up another power structure under a prime minister? I'm less convinced about that. For me, it means there might be just two big opaque centralising structures in Whitehall that people have to lobby and people are getting orders from it might be actually more chaotic so I I agree that treasury power is a problem I'm not wholly convinced that making a super economy for growth sitting under the prime minister who's the most political of everyone and therefore likely to be quite volatile himself is necessarily the answer I just think we should think harder about the institution structures and rules that we have in Whitehall that make Mm -hmm. it so hard for everybody else to have any certainty about what policies
1: they're going to have with mm. the Treasury sitting over them. Thank you. It's such that. a long-standing debate, though, isn't it, Giles? I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, this has been, been talked about, I mean, since the Department of Economic Affairs was set up, under like yeah. Laura Wilson George Brown, I mean, it just never ever seems ultimate, and Blair toyed with the idea of breaking up yeah. the Treasury as well, I mean, it just yeah, never I, ever really seems to get resolved or move significantly.
3: Yeah, it doesn't seem to move. Yes, I think Jeremy Haywood was uh, given the job of coming up with an ultra-secret memo for Blair around 2004 to see, should we take this off ground And then he obviously... That went well. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you're right, it always always comes back, and it came back a lot during austerity times, because people said, why is the mean old Treasury not allowing me the money to spend on things? That would be great. So, yeah, I don't think it will ever go away.
0: Lewis, some candidates have refused to rule out appointing Boris Johnson to their cabinets. Do you think that's really a possibility?
1: Well, and it would be very unusual. I suppose the last time it would happen was when Alec Douglas Hume became Foreign Secretary um, after being Prime Minister. Um, I mean, I I can't imagine that when they actually become Prime Minister and they realise that the whole point of their becoming Prime Minister, one of the things they're going to have to do is convince the public that not only after 12 years, that, that, and they're asking for in effect, effective fifth term when the time comes. That they're a fresh face and got fresh ideas, and distance themselves, after, you know, from a prime minister who, you know, let's face it, has resigned in scandal. Some would say in disgrace, which is pretty unusual for a prime minister to do. I can't quite imagine the necessary. They necessarily want to enter the country is to appoint the guy who, uh, you know, has, let in those circumstances, not least because, let's be honest, I mean, wouldn't you be Rather suspicious about having Boris Johnson <laughs> in a position of, you know, significant power very close to you. I think that they might be more comfortable, frankly, if as expected, he leaves the House of Commons either before mm. the next election or at the next election.
0: Mm. And you've been doing lots of, of polls and talking to people and, and so on. Whoever wins will get a poll bounce of sorts. What do you think the prospects are of a snap election?
1: Oh goodness gracious. I can't imagine that they will be that high for two reasons. One, I think well for three reasons actually. One we all know that the autumn and winter is going to be very, very difficult economically. And I think that they would know that they would really struggle to justify to the country why they needed to be in an election at this time. I suppose they could say, I need my own mandate, but I find that difficult to, to mm. envisage. And I think that the poll bounce probably be there, but will it be significant enough? Mm. It's going to have to be significant just to get back to parity with Labour. Um, do they think that as well, that there is there's, there's the a folk memory of Theresa May and 2017, that is you know, not long ago, although it feels particularly eons ago. But I just think that that will also just linger along in memories. And then I think thirdly, look, look I think the Tory party has, as uh, just going back to what I've said before, you know, and I felt it in uh, a focus group yesterday, there was a real weariness in the country. You talk to voters, real weariness about permanent sense of crisis, yes. endless crisis. And I think that the Tory party has now got an answer. It likes to portray itself as the party of stability and firm government and all this sort of stuff. You know, it's got a bit of an answer, you know, question to answer about whether that is the case anymore. And I think injecting an election into it just would, you know,
0: play very badly. That so puts nice it very well. Whether that. it's contributing to the sense of crisis. Well, let's go on to this question of stability and so on with our second subject, which is really tax um, or uh, tax cuts. And if you're looking for something that unites these candidates, it's the promise of tax cuts, apart from Rishi Sunak, that is, who is not saying that at all. Jill, um, would be Conservative Prime Ministers promising tax cuts and nothing to see here? Well,
2: it's not particularly surprising that they all aspire to reduce what now is the highest tax burden for decades. So in that sense, you would expect conservative candidates to be doing that. The interesting thing is sort of when and how we, and where they're aiming to target those tax cuts. So the real risk is that we're having some very, very big tax uh, ideas floated, um, substantial heights in thresholds, big cuts in VAT on fuel, uh, corporation tax increases rolled back, the national insurance, uh, contribution rise which has been partly paid back anyway through the increase in thresholds, that's just been just taken effect a couple of weeks ago uh, that basically on some of the candidates are all basically saying we can do this that some of them are falling into the mantra that actually the way they square the circle is simply through growth and no, the thing we know and the thing the Treasury will tell them and then you can on day one is, you know, at the margin, perhaps uh, your tax cuts might help the economy a bit. Uh, quite a few of your tax cuts don't look very well targeted if you really want to help people. They don't look very targeted actually if you very much want to help business because corporation tax, by definition, only helps businesses that are making money. Lots of other sort of things like business rates that would be higher up business groups lists. Um it's really quite interesting that, you know, Rishi Sunak and, to an extent as well, Kemi Badenoch. I think, listening to her launch, have both said, yes, we want to cut taxes. But in a sense, you know, Rishi Sunak says, when I've got inflation under control, Kemi Badnock talks about the need to make trade-offs, which is one of her big themes. Watching that, I was almost wondering whether Rishi Sunak might offer to make her his chancellor, sitting it seemed to be on her Quite similar page at least a bit closer from those that basically just saying we can do it all and then there's the big question of what on earth are they going to do about spending to do that and that's mm. where i think we hear even less realism because you have mm. big hikes in defense spending and no realistic suggestions of taking big you know cuts to the big budgets yeah health education and welfare i mean pensions things like that that's where the big money is if you really want
0: to make very substantial cuts well Charles Bourne was arguing on the television the other night that um it, it, the really difficult decisions are on spending not so much on tax charles what do you make of all these pledges
3: well i think they they're terrible in multiple ways i think in particular they're just very tone deaf towards the state the economy's in right now it's remarkable that you know, the conservative, one of the most famous sort of episodes in conservative mythology is when they came in in 1979 and realised that now is the time for tough medicine, and in particular, tough anti-inflationary medicine, which means you can't hide from the message that inflation is sending you, which is we're trying to, you know, get too much out of our economy. We can't just keep pumping and spending, as in fact, Jim Callahan had said several years before. And so it needs to be reduced. And, Right now, they're saying no. Let's sort of add thirty or forty billion in because that's that's good for growth. Now, and these are the people who have often been warning us that we're returning to the seventies if we're not so careful and it's got, we, we can't afford to do this, that, or the other because getting spending getting out of control is a terrible risk to the country. So, I think it's um, it's quite dismaying that they're not even thinking about this. I'm not. I mean, it's it's remarkable that on the whole, this hasn't been an issue for ages. Inflation's been under control. The one moment they get to show real conservative principles, which are that you have to think about sound money. One candidate out of 11 takes that route. So I think it's I think it's quite extraordinary, quite regardless from the fact that I think public services are in a very difficult state. They haven't all been uprated for inflation, so they're taking real terms cuts. We've got strikes going on. We've got very difficult public sector pay awards to deal with. We have an NHS that is striking, coming up against waves of COVID. And, and, and so it seems to me absolutely terrible fairy tale um, economics, and I'm surprised Rishi Sinek hasn't done better with this and turning around and say, what, what, what plans are you guys all on?
0: Yeah, William Haig wrote in the Times that Thatcher would not be cutting taxes now. Is this a sign of how far the Conservative Party's moved or how the Conservative Party misunderstands one of the giants of its history?
3: I think it's partly a reflection of learning the wrong lessons of Johnson, which is you can get away with saying stuff and doing stuff, and if the consequences are a little bit further down the line, we'll, we'll be able to cope with that. In other words, conservatives normally think that chickens come home to roost really quickly, and it's better to get the kudos for being responsible. And Johnson seemed to get away with doing things that he realised you'd have to sort of U-turn on very, very quickly, most famously the so-called government ready Northern Ireland deal. And so they thought, well, you can get away with stuff. So what if what I'm saying is going to be condemned by the Institute for Government or the Institute for Fiscal Studies or William Hague? There doesn't seem to be a cost to that. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily not learning lessons. I don't think it's the case that if we manage to organise a big seminar explaining how money growth leads to inflation and doesn't make anyone better off, they go, oh, sorry, I think I really ought to stop this. They, they, they're, they're just being cynical, in other words.
0: Yeah, Jill, what do these tax cuts mean for net zero, levelling up these big promises under Boris Johnson. Well, it's very interesting. There seems to be uh, sort of some question
2: marks about the extent of the commitment to net zero under any new leader. I think most people think that whatever his flaws, Boris Johnson was probably uh, more committed than any of the potential candidates here, so we might see a bit of rowing back there. That's, in a sense really difficult news. I think two of the candidates suggested delaying the target when they were asked about this by Chris Skidmore, one of the pro net zero uh, conservative backbenchers last night at one of the private hustings, Uh, because actually net zero largely depends on a massive private investment rather than public investment. So putting question marks over what we're going to do when is very unhelpful for businesses looking to invest. On oh, levelling up, I think it's really interesting. Uh, there's a sort of pledge going round for um, from the northern group of MPs uh, to try and get uh, candidates to pledge to continue levelling up. Oh, there's another big Boris Johnson flagship, potentially with a question mark, over it. And, you know, some of them have signed up to it. One commitment is to have a minister for the north in the Cabinet, bind and create new Cabinet jobs. Um, But there's one to say, you know, we will equalise levels of spending across the country. Um, And one of Boris Johnson's bit of cake was to try to say that actually it wasn't zero sum, more for some areas of the country didn't mean less for any other. So that seems to be a potentially have a very big price tag. On it too, if you don't want to make some really difficult decisions for seats that you know, places things like the Tiverton Honiton by election, Cheshire and Amersham suggest might be a bit vulnerable. So, I think there's some southern MPs looking a bit askance at those sorts of commitments. So, I think the real thing is we're not going to emerge from this with anything at all coherent, and potentially, if people feel that they're hooked on things with very big price tags, some very, very difficult. Moments for uh, in the autumn, as you know, a department after department, official after official troops in to hopefully tell ministers that they really have got to make some difficult decisions because it's just not as easy as they presented. The difficulty, of course, then is that that turns
0: into. Uh, yet more frustration with the civil service and, you know, they... Never- go round and round again. Lewis, what do you make of this? Are we into now politics of hard choices after some years of cakeism, or does it really just go on? Promises and promises that are incoherent, as Jill has said. I think
1: Jill's put her finger on it. I think that this is what we're going to encounter and whoever wins is going to uh, is going to have to grapple with one of the ways in which Boris Johnson's premiership and legacy is going to loom very long, in the sense that Boris Johnson, of all people, was very, very good at making, of squaring political circles, of squaring political contradictions. And he could sort of gel it together. He wasn't necessarily good at realising it in terms of policy outcomes. In fact, in many cases, he wasn't. But what he was good at is making the politics work, at least at the time he was Prime Minister. It may have caught up with him in the end. But none of these candidates have anything like that level of political skill. And so what they're having to now try and do is effectively grapple with that legacy and try and make sense of it, try to inject some coherence into it. And they're simply not able to do so. I think one thing you can say, is though, is, is I think one of the things that I have been struck by is the extent to which levelling up has... Um, has sort of faded very, very, very quickly. And in, in one sense, one thing you can say about Boris Johnson for all of his cakeism and faults is that he definitely recognised very early on, I think, that the Brexit legacy, the cost of achieving Brexit for the Conservative Party, was this change, this shift in the party's political demography and the coalition that it had assembled. And that did require a different sort of politi- of conservatism and a different set of policy priorities and emphases that might have existed before. I think what we're seeing to some extent is some Conservatives just, they just haven't grappled with that in the same way. And they're yearning for a sort of uh, that's Thatcherism that simply, you know, would not be appropriate anyway, for all the reasons we've already discussed, and the people have talked about, but certainly wouldn't be appropriate for the political coalition that the Conservative Party now inhabits. Le-
2: Lewis, it's quite interesting that Richard being. being dubbed by some of Boris Johnson's closest supporters as a socialist chancellor for not wanting to cut taxes straight away and say spending's a bit harder than you think uh, to deal with. Uh, which seems very odd since the story before that was all number 11 desperately trying to restrain Boris Johnson's spending ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so soon, Sunap's a socialist. Where did that leave Boris Johnson <laughs> well,
1: indeed. Indeed. And I do think one of the really fascinating things, and again, this is a kind of legacy partly about Boris Johnson, but also about the kind of the whole period that we've been through since Brexit and Conservative Party politics, one of the really interesting things seeing Blaine out is, and Danny Finkelstein wrote with a column in The Times about this uh, yesterday, is this sense of, I mean, for me, the Conservative Party, to some extent, there are elements of it, and this has been building for a while, but there are elements of it that almost remind me of parts of the Benite left in the 1980s, everything is always about um, the idea of being a a true conservative, an authentic conservative, a true believer, just as it was for Ben and some of his followers around kind of being a true socialist, an authentic socialist. And you end up with people who are clearly part of the conservative tradition by any stretch of the imagination being dubbed as not truly conservative or indeed socialist. Um, And that's, I think, how you end up in a kind of really perverse, weird situation where, you know, you have someone like Penny Morden or Rishi Sunak um, you know, who were all both Brexiters, basically being dismissed by people like Lord Frost or Jacob rees mogg or others as, as not being true Brexiters or not being sort of worthy of the name. But you can get someone like Liz Truss, who was a Remainer, be, be hailed as the true Brexiter. And I think that is because there's this sense the Conservative Party has now about belief. it's court religion, which is a very unconservative kind of thing to do. And I think the danger, and so, you know, you have someone like Truss is hailed almost with the sort of the zeal of the convert. And I think the danger for the Tories is that, you know, one of their great, great strengths historically has been that ability to be grounded in reality, to be grounded in trade-offs, the politics of what's possible rather than the politics of everything they'd like it to be. And I think there's a real sense that they're just losing that. And, you know, that is just a big danger for them because it's been, as I say, a real strength for theirs historically.
0: Lewis, let's use that as a chance to talk about one of the really hard choices definitely grounded in reality, and that's energy bills. And it's going to dominate uh, what the next Prime Minister does. It may yet cause some big headaches in the last days of this caretaker administration. We're joined now by our colleague, Ollie Bartram, who's been writing about this for the IFG. Hi, Ollie. Hi, Roman. Thank you. Thank you for what, you, you, what you've been writing. And for this discussion perhaps you can kick us off and you, you've been writing that it's not likely but not impossible that russian gas is cut off so how bad could this get
4: yes so um gas has been a sort of point of uh contention particularly amongst eu leaders since the invasion kicked off we've had sort of a group of eu countries who are very keen to uh, stop buying russian gas as an escalation of sanctions Uh, but some notably Germany arguing against. However, uh, Nord Stream, which is the pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany, is currently out of action due to maintenance. And the Germans are very concerned they won't turn it back on again. So gas could feasibly get cut off in the next few weeks or further down the line as sanctions escalate. Now, for the UK, there are sort of two effects. One, which is Possible, but not likely, is that the UK faces physical shortages of both gas and electricity. Now, that's if we can't secure gas from other places, so Norway, the global LNG market. So, you know, the lights could go off in the UK, uh, but that's a sort of unlikely, really, downside scenario. What will certainly happen if Russia cuts off gas to the EU is that prices will skyrocket. The OBR think they'll go to three times their current record-breaking levels. That will put inflation into double digits well into next year. We'll have quite a significant recession. Um, And finally, a real impact will be felt in European politics. Um, So it could potentially be very, very, very divisive as EU governments seek to ration scarce supplies of gas between them um, so it could be a real mess this winter
0: real mess uh, th- these are big numbers you're talking about threefold increase and so on so those are the known unknowns to paraphrase donald rumsfeld can you take us through the known knowns the, the timetable of price rises and the off-term announcements
4: yes sure so uh the last sort of uh, change we had in the cap came through in april Um, And then the next change will happen in October. But we'll get the announcement in August, a few weeks before the new Prime Minister comes in. Now, at the May package, the government thought that the price cap in October, based on what had happened so far, would go up from £2,000 a year to £2,800 a year an absolutely huge increase and that is why sunak intervened with that very large package however since then they've gone up even more so we now expect that october cap to be 3.2000 pounds a year which is 400 pounds more than sunak expected uh, back in may now if we have disruption to russian gas trade Prices could go up even further, so we could be in for a real shock in October, and then another real shock in April
3: next year, where they're likely to go up again.
0: Charles, these are huge numbers, and the Treasury have to do something about.
3: This. Yeah, I mean, I, to give you some context, I, I was in Downing Street proposing and getting through the um, the price cap, or rather, it was in the Tory manifesto. We 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 got it through to show that Theresa May could still deliver on her promises. And these are numbers that are just quite beyond anything we ever imagined. By such a long way, we used to worry about the moment when maybe the prices will have to go up by £150 and it will look like a political decision to put energy bills up. We never conceived of £500, let alone 500 then another 1000 Then That was quite beyond anything that the government will ever have planned out. So, yeah, I think the Treasury, well, it does need to act. I mean, whether it can absorb all of it, without sending the damaging signal that, you know, this is now something that we can just socialise is a really difficult question. I mean, in particular, Treasury officials will be arguing back strongly that you need people to still be witnessing these energy prices in order to be taking all the actions to cut down on their energy use. The the market mechanism still needs to work. So ideally, if we were just writing from an RFG perspective, we would say you need to raise benefits for the really vulnerable, for the people who are going to be tipped into absolute poverty and distress by these rises, but not necessarily stop the energy prices going up, because we need everybody to stop and think, wow, insulation is such a good idea right now, turn down the thermostat, all of those decisions need to happen as well. But yeah, I don't don't think they could ignore it at all. And I don't think the current leadership debate has come anywhere near addressing what this will be like in October.
0: I completely agree jill what can a caretaker government which boris johnson's is do with all this happening you know as, as it's sitting there
2: well it uh the rules that they signed up to last week that the cabinet announced was that they weren't going to make any big decisions i think as Ollie said. We've actually had, and actually I think the payment's going to benefit recipients, even as we speak, they should be appearing in people's bank accounts. So we've had the sort of start of the cushioning packages coming through. So I think in a sense, because we should have a new prime minister on the 5th of September, uh, this could be something where, you know, First cabinet, uh, very early on, they will have to think, do we need to do more? Do we need to go a bit further than uh, than we did? But as I said, the real sort of thing to play for is the price cap to come if we get this further dramatic increase in the sort of scenarios. And one of the things that would be really, really interesting would be, would a change of prime minister lead to uh British government's more willing to talk about the demand side and not just talk about the supply side. Uh, we had an energy secure- supply security strategy, but that's very long-term solutions. It didn't offer anything very significant in the short term. In contrast to Europe, our ministers have been extraordinarily reluctant to talk about any demand or any suggestion. You know, Giles has mentioning things like turning the thermostat down, optimising boiler flow. uh you know, maybe people are doing that themselves. They, you see reports in the paper, you know, people are not driving quite so much. People are getting out on their bikes. People are doing X, Y, Z. We've also got the heat wave at the moment, so it's not very present of mind. But I think it'd be very interesting to see if, you know, a different prime minister confronting what is potentially a much and even more difficult situation is prepared to send out slightly more difficult messages. But I think the timing is just about working with the caretakerism, though, if we'd gone for a very extended contest into sort of
0: mid-October or whatever, I think that would have been difficult. What does the next Prime Minister make of it?
1: Well, it's clearly going to be uh, one of the very first political priorities. And uh, going back to our earlier discussion, you know, it is inconceivable to me that both of the candidates whoever gets through to the last two will not be forced to, at the very least, give a very firm indication as to what extra support they think might be possible. Uh, obviously, with Sunak, you know, again, this is why he gets keeps getting bogged down. He was already in charge of this effectively while he was Chancellor, so it's particularly difficult for him. On the demand side, part, I think it's really interesting. I suppose my sort of instant reaction to that is I just don't you think you know, that there is a possibility that you know if someone really starts talking about that, we've already talked about the possible returns of the 1970s and industrial unrest, whatever, that all the comparisons start to be made straight away with Ted Heath and the three-day week. And that uh, you know that just becomes that sort of again just looms large for any potential sort the prime minister. So I just think, I mean, as soon as they start getting into that sort of territory, I mean, one can imagine mm-hmm. just how dangerous that could be for them.
2: You can stop before the three day week, and it you doesn't rush there are other thing. options definitely. and uh, yes, do things. But I do think the sort of spectre of Patrick Jenkin, uh, for those that are old enough to remember him telling people to clean their teeth in uh, in the dark and stuff like that, does loom. And one reason oh, why yeah. ministers are so reticent about oh. this whole agenda.
1: Yeah. Or even oh. do, you, do you remember? Do you remember even even on a much smaller scale? But do you remember when Francis Maud encouraged people to fill up the jerry can before um, before potential uh, uh, was it strike? I
0: can't remember what it was. No, it was a
1: fuel strike. I can't remember um, what it, it, was, it was. It was fuel driver strikes oh, back in twenty twelve. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. We we completely have a whole dark nostalgia episode on this. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the worst thing? But Ollie, could you just because we're we're coming to the end, Ollie, could you just wrap this up for us with your, your, your last take on the options available to the next prime minister, who we will have very soon.
4: Yeah, of course. Uh, so I completely agree with Jill that um, the caretaker government should wait for any big fiscal package because consumers will be protected by the cap. It's worth just briefly noting noting a caretaker government may have to deal with some real emergencies. So if a wholesale uh, if a rising gas prices causes loads of businesses to stop production, like the whole CO two debacle we saw last year caretaker government's going to have to step in there but when johnson's successor comes in you know we're already going to see huge price rises as we as we discussed earlier we may see even larger ones uh if russia cuts off gas to the eu yeah. um so the government may wish to announce new fiscal support but Unless they're going to raise taxes or break the fiscal rules that they've already set, both of which seem unlikely with the current set of contenders, then more fiscal support doesn't seem particularly likely. Mm. Um, But it will be very, very, very difficult to sell that politically.
0: Okay, well, thank you. Well, we'll go on that very, very, very difficult. We're going to have to leave it. I feel I've rather shortchanged the competitive nostalgia, but maybe another time. On that note, many thanks to Jill Rutter, Giles Wilkes, Ollie Bartram, and especially to Lewis Goodall. Thanks for joining us. Thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And at the risk of sounding like a Conservative Party leadership contender, please do leave us a good review, or a review, anyway. Don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our latest explainers on how this leadership contest is run and a new paper on what the civil service needs to do in the post-Johnson era. That's it for now. As the votes come in, the deals are done. The timetable for the race to become prime minister could yet change. We will be back next week, whatever happens. See you then.